The sermon text for this morning will be Acts 13, verses 1 through 5. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is the last sermon in our series from the book of Acts entitled Worship and Witness. That's precisely what we find in this passage this morning. The worshiping church is a witnessing church, which means it is a sending church. The book of Acts is the history of how all this got started. It's an early history of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit through the church. Jesus says in chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We see this is exactly what happens as the book unfolds. Having received the Spirit at Pentecost, the apostles bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem and we see God move savingly among thousands of people. We see the infant church is bound together in remarkable love and fellowship. And in the midst of this community, God continues to add to their number day by day those who are being saved. The gospel is on the move. It's spreading. Opposition from the religious leaders is quickly kindled, but we see the church is not daunted. They, they keep speaking of the risen Christ and proclaiming salvation in his name. When their leaders are thrown in prison, they go to prayer. And they actually ask God for boldness to keep speaking the word. After the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution arises and the church is scattered throughout the region where they went about preaching the word. Chapter 8, verse 1. And amazingly, Gentiles begin responding to this message. By Gentiles, I mean pagans, non-Jews. So we we see the people of Samaria and an official from Ethiopia and a centurion and his household As these people start trickling in, God begins preparing his apostle to the Gentiles for the work he's called him to. So Luke, he's a master storyteller. He introduces us to the young man, Saul, who was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and throwing them in prison, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's how Luke describes this man, Saul. Saul actually stands there watching as people bludgeon Stephen to death with rocks. And he holds their coats while they, while they do this. Even a man such as this, God mercifully delivers him from his sins. And then God does something only God could orchestrate. He tells Ananias that Saul, also known as Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of of Israel. So we see that if Jesus intends to save you, there's no escaping. If he's going to call you, enlist you for his purposes, if you're in his tractor beam, you're, it's a done deal. He's got you. His gospel is about to spread throughout the entire Mediterranean 
Basin. So the book of Acts begins with this small group of nobodies in Jerusalem, but by the end, Paul is preaching under the nose of Caesar in the capital of the Roman Empire. God's people are filled with his spirit, and they are so captivated by the resurrected son that they're compelled to go and make him known. So missions is birthed in the midst of worship. The worshiping church is a sending church. The church that worships God will send missionaries for God, and it should also ignite all kinds of local evangelism. Last week, we got to glimpse a prayer meeting of the early church, and so this morning, we're going to get to see a worship service that includes a kind of ordination ceremony, a commissioning, but one of massive historical significance. So we'll, we'll first look at the church gathered in worship, and secondly, we'll consider the church in its sending. So the worshiping church and the sending church, uh, two sides of the same coin, Th- these ideas are really knit together. So there's a lot of names and places we haven't encountered yet, so let me give some context. Uh, First of all, we're not in Jerusalem. We're 300 miles north in Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, And there's a flourishing church there. How how did this come to be? Chapter 11, verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, I love that line, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So a Hellenist is a Greek-speaking non-Jew. So these men who were fleeing persecution, they came to Antioch and started evangelizing Gentiles there in Antioch. And so the Antiochian church was born, and really the ramifications for church history are colossal. The church in Jerusalem, they they hear about this, so they send an eminent teacher and leader named Barnabas. Check things out, and he loves what he sees. He teaches and encourages the church, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That's verse 24. He goes to get Saul in Tarsus, brings him to Antioch, and they teach a great many people. People, So you see that phrase again. This church is considerably blessed by God. They are growing by leaps and bounds. It's in Antioch where believers are first called Christians, which just means followers of Christ. Clearly the church was bearing witness about the one who was at the center of their lives. They left no question about that. Everyone knew who these people worshipped. Those are Christians. They, They follow Christ. And their worship of Christ spilled over in good deeds. Uh, They receive word through a prophet that a famine is coming over all the world, which obviously is going to include them as well. But what do they do? Chapter 11, verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So this church wants to help the church in Jerusalem. This church loves and worships Jesus Christ. You see it in how they live. They are a self-giving, self-denying church. And for the sake of the nations, they're about to give away two of their very best. But first, let's look at the church gathered in worship. Clearly, the concept of worship is full-orbed. I've already given some examples of that. The worship of God is a joyful exaltation of God 
in all of life, encompassing how we think and feel, the decisions we make, the, the jobs we work, how we raise our kids, how we spend our money. God will have all of it. He is infinitely worthy of worship. Psalm 96, 4, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So here in chapter 13, we find the church in Antioch gathered corporately to express this worship in fasting and prayer. So their, their leaders are there with them. There's a group of five prophets and teachers. You just notice the diversity of this bunch. Each of them is unique in terms of background. The first and the last we already know. In between are three men who would be so wonderful to know more about, just to know their stories. <clears throat> the first is Simeon, who was called Niger. So uh, Niger is Latin for dark complexioned. So he was likely from the western region of North Africa where Latin was spoken. Uh, then Lucius of Cyrene, which is present day Libya. So he's further east. Lucius uh, may, may have been one of the men who originally came to Antioch to preach Christ to uh, the Gentiles. He just came there from persecution, just started talking to those people who were there and became a leader of the church. Quite likely. And last we have Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So to be clear, this is not the same Herod who was mentioned in, in the previous paragraph. Uh, this is Herod Antipas, a Tetrarch of Galilee. The, the, the previous Herod was put to death, struck down by the Lord. Really, all of the Herods are just not good. But this guy, Antipas, uh, Menean, knows him well apparently. Uh, your translation might say Menean, a member of the court of Herod. Uh, the NIV uh, says Menean, who had been brought up with Herod. So they're trying to explain this concept of foster brother. Apparently in those days, if you're a royal prince, you're a little guy there in the palace, uh, they'd bring in another kid, your same age, to grow up with you, be your best friend. That, that was Menean. He was the foster brother of Herod Antipas. So just consider, I mentioned this to consider the mystery and sovereignty of God on display in these two boys. So one would grow up to be an influential Christian leader. The other would be remembered as the one who beheaded John the Baptist and mocked Jesus Christ. Just fascinating. And also note the level of detail Luke provides us. As is so often the case in the New Testament, this reads like factual history. You know, once you start naming names and telling where people are from, that's really easy to go back and if you're, if you're lying, you, you can be discredited really easily. But no, this, this, this checked out. Luke is a very careful historian. So, so friends, the, these were real people who lived real lives just like you and me. And, and so there they are with the congregation. I think the word they in verse two is the entire church. Not just these five men. There's several places in the book of Acts where you see the church come together uh, and, and affirm and make decisions as a whole. And I think that's what's going on here. They're about to make a very big decision. They are worshiping the Lord and fasting. So they're just doing what Jesus said they would do. Uh, Mark chapter two, people ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast. He said in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Fasting is a denial of the distractions or pleasures of this earthly life, usually food, so that we can feed our souls on God. Our Christians fast for direction, guidance, wisdom, and to know God better. 
So worship is, is both a delight in God and a desperation for God. I think last week Tom used the phrase savoring God and seeking God. I wonder, I wonder if that would describe your walk with God. Do you often even think, do you, do you think about God? Does the, does the transcendent majesty of God make you happy? Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord strips the forests bare and in his temple all cry glory. Do you long for him? Do you long for God to be seen for who he really is? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So the church in Antioch is hungry for God. They are waiting for God and clearly they want the nations to know him. And no one, nobody can time these things. They're just doing what they've always done. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, God spoke. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So we're not told in what manner the Spirit communicated uh, this message. It, it may have come through one of the prophets, uh, but the main point is that God is doing the initiating here. Uh, the Holy Spirit refers to himself twice, set apart for me. I have called them. So missions is God's idea, not man's. The Spirit calls the missionaries. He commands the church to set them apart and the Spirit sends them out. You see that in verse four. But that doesn't mean the church is just standing there watching from the sidelines. No, the church confirms the call on these men. They fast and they pray over it. They lay their hands on these men. They send them off in obedience to the Spirit. So it says the church sends them and the Spirit sends them. And the church uh, will receive a report when, when Paul and Barnabas come back. So the church is intimately involved in this process. As engaged as they were in worship, they now will move move obediently to send. And so those two things are inextricably linked. So we now turn to look at the sending church. Maybe you've heard the stories of uh, the Moravians. 1727 in Saxony, their small community started praying. And they didn't stop praying for over 100 years. Years. It was a round-the-clock prayer watch. By 1791, they had sent out 300 missionaries to Turkey, Greenland, North America, and the West Indies. Some of them sold themselves into slavery in the Caribbean, knowing full well that the average lifespan of a slave at that time in that locale was about two years. Two of them, they boarded a boat as they left Copenhagen, lifted their hands, they called out to their loved ones left there on the shore, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. They're just echoing Revelation 5, 9. When all of heaven falls down before the lamb and they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So these two men, they went out with great confidence to indiscriminately preach the gospel knowing that God would draw those whom his son had already 
purchased. Missions is not a fool's errand. We go with great confidence. And so there was work to be done. And they went out to do it just like Paul and Barnabas. The Holy Spirit said, set them apart for the work to which I have called them. Now, now Paul and Barnabas had already been telling people about Jesus. Uh, Paul had risked his life doing it, both in Damascus and Jerusalem. Uh, He already knew what Jesus wanted him to do. He learned that back at his conversion. But clearly God is doing something new here, something that required a fresh commissioning. There is a solemnity and a weight to this scene that we're meant to to take note of. Uh, This is a turning point. So yes, the gospel had come to pockets of Gentiles already in the book of Acts through isolated individuals who were scattered because of the persecution. We think of Philip Peter, Peter helped the church reach the point where they understood then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. But this is the first time that a church is making a deliberate, organized decision to send out representatives for overseas missions. One commentator said that in this passage, the Gentile mission has become established policy. So in verse 9, Luke stops calling him Saul. So that, that's done with. That, that's his Hebrew name. He switches to Paul, his Roman name. Uh, he'll be Paul for the rest of the book because <clears throat> this ministry to establish churches among the Gentile nations, this is going to be the rest of Paul's life. It's true strategically, when they come to a town, they go to the Jewish synagogue first. Uh, you see that in verse 5. The Jews are steeped in the scriptures. It's a natural starting point. Uh, but it's also a convenient place to make contact with Gentiles who are God-fearing, people like Cornelius. So Paul wants to bring the good news of Christ to entire regions populated with Gentiles, and this is his strategy. He's thinking about this. So this is a clear transition taking place in salvation history. It began at Pentecost, and now it's being formally implemented in the church at Antioch. The gospel This gospel is for the nations. And Antioch stands at the center of this transition. It is the largest, third largest that is, in the Roman Empire, uh, third largest city. About a half a million people live there. Very much a Gentile city. There is a sizable group of Jews, but uh, they are surrounded by the Greek culture. Magnificent temples to the Roman gods. Morally speaking, it was a dark place. But in the sovereign purposes of God, Antioch becomes the birthplace of Christian foreign missions. So this is a crucial event in the history of the church. Our very lives are are tied up in what happened that day in Antioch. Uh, Many of you know that Danielle and I served in Croatia for several years uh, with Campus Crusade doing campus ministry. We lived in a town along the Adriatic Sea whose prized possession was a 1,700-year-old Roman palace built by Emperor Diocletian. So history buffs, that's just prior to Constantine. It's an amazing palace. I never got over it. We lived there eight years. I, I, never, I never got tired of it. So I got to walk through it every day. <clears throat> got a picture of it in my office on the wall. You want to come take a look at it? I will tell you far more than you desire about, about this place. But just on the outskirts of town is something even older. You can walk through the ruins of a city called Salona, which which was the capital city of the Roman province of Dalmatia in Paul's day. That strip of land is still called Dalmatia to this day. The Croats would say, Danielle, 
was a Prava Dalmatinka, which is, uh, she's a real Dalmatian because her accent was so good. They never said that about me. But, but uh, so I'm walking through the ruins of this city, 2,000-year-old streets and walls and even a coliseum, and I come upon a placard, a, a sign that gives you all the historical facts. Starts talking about the patron saint of the city, a guy named Dominus, who was martyred by Diocletian in 304. And you'll never guess where Dominus is from. He's from Antioch. I about fell over right there. So that means that if Dominus was executed in 304 in Salona, the church in Antioch was still sending missionaries 250 years later. It's incredible. So you're just immediately swept up into the the biblical storyline. Brothers and sisters, we are part of an ancient chain of discipleship that echoes down the centuries to this day. It's a sequence of events and, and, and places and people that from God's point of view must be so intriguing. He must take such joy seeing it unfold, even our very lives unfolding, his kingdom growing until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where we're headed. So I ask you, why wouldn't you want to be a part of seeing this continue? There is a cost, no doubt. Paul and Barnabas, they're not going to come back for a year and a half. They have no idea what they're about to face. They will confront a demonic magician. They will be reviled by the authorities. They will be forced to leave city by city, driven out, fleeing for their lives. And this is just their first missionary journey. But along the way, there will be much fruit as well. They will spark a fire that will spread through the whole empire. And so if the Great Commission is to continue, some of us will have to leave our homes. And I'm often reminded of the cost to parents whose children take up this call because they won't be there on Sunday afternoons for lunch. They won't be there for the birthday gatherings or for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. You, you will not often see your grandchildren. And these kinds of losses and more that are hard to put words to, they are not insignificant. But as you take these pains to God and consider your suffering as part of the burden necessary to get the gospel to the nations who will perish without it, God will provide an abiding joy. Even as you hurt, he sees you. So our church has sent out two couples long-term and a handful of others for for shorter assignments. Uh, God willing, we will send more. Maybe there are a few of you here this morning, maybe just one or two. What should you do if you find God inclining your heart for this kind of ministry? Well, you should start talking about it. Meet with Nick. He, he oversees missions here at our church. Talk with Anna Dobb. She's getting a PhD in missions. I think she knows a thing or two. You need the church to walk with you through this process. It's, it's a cooperative effort. Just, just look at the passage we just read. The church is not on the sidelines. If you haven't already, start reading missionary biographies. Read good books like John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, consider going to the Cross Conference in Louisville in January. Even better, locally uh, at um, Southeastern, Nine Marks is doing a conference this, this year. The theme is missions. You should be there. It's next month. 
God uses means. So, so put yourself in the way of these kinds of things and see what God does. I love what Paul tells Timothy. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you. Fan into flame. That's really a word for all of us. There will be a minority few who must leave us to serve overseas, but that doesn't mean the rest of us have no work to do. Oh, no. Living in a suburban neighborhood in North Raleigh might feel like the most ordinary and commonplace thing in the world, but but you're not there by accident. Paul says in Acts 17 that God has determined the times and places in which we live. So you may never leave Durant Trails, but that doesn't mean you're not sent. Eternity is being shaped in those conversations with neighbors over the fence, over the grill, those invitations to dinner. Things are happening there. Don't underestimate the value of becoming a trusted neighbor and a good friend. Take the time to build rapport with people. Of course, there will come a time when you need to open your mouth. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. So there's a particular message that has to be communicated, has to be articulated, has to be explained and taught. The gospel has to be heard. So many good stories of this kind of thing in our church. Here's just one that I heard about. Uh, Larry and Marsha Frerichs, uh, longtime members of this church. Larry is an elder here. Uh, we're going to go back to 92, 93. They're out together uh, pushing their daughter in a stroller. And uh, they're in their neighborhood, and there's a man in, in the yard working. He says hello. They say hello. They strike up a conversation, talk for a little bit, and they go on their way. Well, the man was Richard Lester who's now a member of our church, has been for several years. At the time, he was not. At the time, he was not going to any church at all. Well, Marsha uh, later reaches out to Linda, his wife. Uh, They have the Lesters over for dinner. A strong friendship develops over the course of several years. Larry is helping Richard out with projects around the house. Uh, They go on walks together. They go fishing together. Uh, Linda and Marsha are getting together. Their, Their kids are hanging out together. Uh, and Richard told me a couple days ago that at the time he was repelled by Christians. Didn't want anything to do with them. And yet, he's drawn to this guy, Larry. He, his life is exemplary. He, he's drawn to him. Richard said one day they were fishing and Larry just asked him, are you a believer? What do you think about God? And Larry begins to explain to Richard the story of Jesus and Nicodemus and the need to be born again. And Richard said that was the first time anybody had explained the gospel to him. Larry later comes back, gives him a little gospel booklet to read. Uh, Richard said he still has that gospel track to this day. January 2nd, 1998, 10 o'clock at night, Richard kneels beside his bed, cries out to God, please help me. Richard becomes a Christian. Six months later, Linda becomes a Christian. A few years down the road, their two sons become Christians. Christians. So this stuff is happening in boring, run-of-the-mill neighborhoods in North Raleigh. Who are you befriending? Who are you talking to? Who has heard the gospel from your lips? I've said that a worshiping church is a sending church. Well, a worshiping Christian is a witnessing Christian. The warmth of the worship of God in your own heart should compel you to open your mouth. 
And I say that with gentleness. I know we all have different personalities and we all have different capacities for social engagement. This is not just for extroverts. Otherwise, you know, I'm out. It's going to look different depending on, on who you are. That's okay. At the same time, I wouldn't wait for some kind of special feeling to wash over you. That's just not going to happen. At least not usually. Uh, pray for opportunities and then just surprise yourself and ask the neighbors over for dinner. Ask your barber if he grew up going to church and what he thought about it. Start a conversation and see what God does. Despite what our American lives might look like with, with our education and our health and, and the peace we enjoy, the abundant food, the fine entertainment, you pull back that veneer, people are, are living they're, tra- they're trapped in an awful, inescapable darkness, a spiritual darkness. So let me conclude. I want to read a portion from William, William Booth's A Vision of the Lost. William Booth, he was the founder of the Salvation Army. It's an allegory. It's a bit lengthy, but just stick with me. He writes, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then vivid winds moaned and the waves rose and, rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water regardless of the consequences and their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me the most was the fact that Though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. It seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Friends, we have been sent out by the Spirit to proclaim the Word of God. Some of us to Asia, some of us to Africa, some of us that remains to be seen. We don't know yet. Most of us here, right here in Raleigh. 
how we need God's help to remain faithful to this task. Let's take a few moments now to respond to these things.